0: Dash 2024. We hope to see you January 19th and or January 20th, and can't wait to connect with you. Hi everyone, welcome to the Ashley Barlow Company podcast. I'm Ashley Barlow, your host. If you are a parent, a teacher or someone who works at a school, or you're a community member, a volunteer or a staff member in an organization that supports people with special education plans, a coach, a tutor, or even a grandparent. You're in the right place. Sit back with an ice cold glass of lemonade, put on your walking shoes and grab some headphones, roll down the windows and cruise. Ready, set, go. Educate, vacate, collaborate. Hello, Dr. Annie, how are you? Good, how are you? But I didn't ask you if I could call you Dr. Annie, but that's just why I'm going to start calling you.
1: Perfect, sounds good. (laughs) Okay, I think I should probably have said, is that an okay thing to call you? It is. But it's funny. At the, uh, it, it depends. If I'm talking to a parent, usually I have them just call me Annie, but in a meeting, sometimes Dr. Annie is helpful. Yes.
0: As is gray hair, I have learned that age has helped me quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you here. Behavior topics are always very popular. And so I'm really happy to have connected with you and I hope you can be a great resource. Why don't we start off by having you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure, I'm so happy to be here. First off, I always start with, I am a mother of three children who have been amazing to watch grow up, although I feel like we still have the teen years to tackle. So I have a 12, nine and six-year-old. About to get fun. fun. It is about to get fun. And my, currently I am an IEP advocate. That's most of what I spend my time doing. And, and a behavior analyst, right? So I, I never let that behavior analyst piece of me. It's always there. It was my practice and my training. And currently I support families combining that behavior analysis and IEP advocacy to help kids in school do better. So typically families will call me when there are significant challenges or lack of progress due to behavior. And the reason I got there, like rewind, I was a special ed teacher in Virginia and Washington state, which I loved dearly. And then I had a consultant from the University of Washington helping us with a case. And she told me that there was a space in the doctoral program at the University of Washington and wanted to know if I wanted to join. So I did, and I got my PhD in special education, then also got all the classes and supervision for being a board certified behavior analyst or BCBA. And then I had a daughter who had a skull deformity when she was born. And so she had major skull reconstruction and we had to go through early intervention and things like that. So I feel like my whole world came together around her when she was younger and an infant. And- and then I wanted to have some more flexible hours. So as I looked at being a clinical behavior analyst, a lot of that was on nights and weekends. And she, I felt like she needed me on those nights and weekends. And so I decided to look for something that was more during school and school-aged school time services so I could be with her more. And that's then when I looked at advocacy, because those are during school hours. IEP meetings and meeting with families were mostly during school hours.
0: Yeah. That is incredible. That's a really cool journey. And I, are you a member of TOPA? I am. Yes. Yes. I know a lot of people through COPA and I don't know a whole lot of people that took that path to advocate through behavior thing. But holy cow in 2023 is it's so important because I think it's fair to say that almost all humans have had a behavioral or a social emotional component to change related to the pandemics. Man, I wish you were here.
1: I love it. I think that was something that a lot of people ask me, like, how did you get into advocacy? And really it was almost by accident. I just started helping families in the IEP process and then realized that I knew a lot about special education and how can we get all that I learned about special education, even in the IEP, because so much of what was happening in this school wasn't well-documented. And so as we then developed a little bit of a process of, before doing it anyway, put it in the IP. Yeah. The approach that I take.
0: Yeah. But that is how my path started as well. And I think there's a lot of us that start that way. Like a lot of tutors that are like, oh yeah, sure. I'll come to your meeting. And then they're like, I'm actually good at this. I should get more (laughs) more training. And yeah. Yeah. Why don't we start by talking about what you do as a BCBA. So what does a BCBA do? What is this kind of behavior thing? Because I think a lot of people are like, should I get somebody involved to talk about behavior, but they really don't know what to do?
1: Sure. BCBA is a board-certified behavior analyst who has taken at least master's level classes and done a whole lot of hours. It depends. Sometimes our hours are evolving. So some most people have done at least 2,000 hours of supervision, sometimes more depending on when you got your supervision. And then you have to pass a test and then continue to grow in your education and your supervision and your your so really behavior analysts look at environmental variables that influence behavior and so looking at people places things and the individual and kind of the impact that has on behavior and I think the really important piece is that behavior is not just challenging behavior right it's not just that problematic sense, but also things that may look more like rigid behavior or skills that need to be learned. So we spend a lot of time helping families with routines in the morning, independent living skills, bathing, toileting. So those things haven't become problematic, but parents need support in a more systematic approach to their child learning. Oftentimes when people are saying, do I need one of you? right? It's a hard question to answer is if you feel like for parents anyway, that you've done a lot of the parenting things, right? There isn't a manual, but if you spend some time online and you've tried to teach your child how to do something and it's just not falling in line with how you want it for your family and you might be thinking about reaching out, a behavior analyst could be somebody who could definitely help teach new skills, leisure skills, communication skills, leisure as well as then creating a plan to help decrease challenging behaviors if that's something that also needs some more assistance.
0: Yeah, and I'm happy that you focused on that piece to it. So, of course, you can look at problematic behaviors like aggression or the impact of impulsivity or something like that. But then also that I what I call human behavior, those activities of daily living or just things that happen along the way. Like I told you, my little boy is addicted to stuff right now. He likes to organize stuff. He likes to just have stuff. He you know, like stuff everywhere, and and for him that probably has a it's probably rooted in some anxiety and control stuff. So like figuring out ways around that, I think for me I am a why person anyway. I probably should have been behavior, been a behaviorist because I'm like oh I want to know why something happens, and that's like the key to it all. Yeah, I'm happy that you mentioned that because I think a lot of parents only consult with the BCBA if they think that they've got a problem behavior.
1: And sometimes it is different in each state, sometimes on what is covered by insurance. So just to be super transparent, if your state covers ABA through medical insurance, sometimes that focus has to be on decreasing what would be interfering or problematic behaviors. And to look at covering what we call kind of skill acquisition or learning new things, sometimes that's not necessarily covered by insurance. So sometimes the narrow scope that people see behavior analysts in is really sometimes dictated by who's the funder. But that's where I say, look broader. <laughs> look look right. to people who, you know, can definitely help maybe outside of some of those na- narrow insurance cover. Darn it.
0: It's always the insurance companies. <laughs> yeah. And that's a very good point. So Another problem that I see families have generally, and we're going to we're going to get deeper into this stuff, but another problem that I see is that the system of supports don't always work well. So between I always tell parents that they are the general contractors of home and the community, and then the school people are really the general contractors of school. But because Congress did all this research and all the research said, yes, parents need to be on these IEP teams. The, the thing that isn't written and very implied is that all of those people have to talk about what's happening in all three of those venues, home, community, school, in order to facilitate a great IEP. And when the system of supports is working well behaviorally, how does that look? And then can you talk about why it's important that we have that collaboration between the people that are working in home, community, and school? Like, why do we need that continuity? and then how does it
1: work? Sure. So that continuity, I think you said it, but I also want to phrase is so important to all the individuals, right? To the adults, as well as to the child or the school age individual. And really the reason that it, the communication and collaboration is really important, but I also want to highlight that it doesn't duplication or you don't have to do the exact same thing across all environments because some people talk about consistency being the key and I actually think consistency in some things is really important but also making sure that and I think you probably understand this as a mom Ashley is you can't do everything and your day doesn't run the same as math and writing and reading right so you're not going to run the exact same supports because you're working on different things and you're living life differently than in the home and in the community and school. So And you, that's important, mm. right? If you only do well with structure,
0: then you've gotta know how to behave when structure when there isn't as much structure. It's an
1: important life skill. So yeah, Nabi Yeah. And I think the making sure and it sometimes it means that the responsibility is on everybody, right? So like school to say, oh, we need to help him learn how to communicate in unstructured environments. There's only so many unstructured environments that a school can create to practice those opportunities. So you even get to a certain point, but then it really is, okay, at home, if it's way less structured, what is that going to look like? And knowing that some tools in some of the less structured school setting may look like this and translating that into the home. But then also even a more or less structured tends to be the community, right? Like how structured is walking through Target or the grocery store? What should that look like? And just making sure that consistency in approach, but not necessarily replicating everything across all environments. And for sure, some kids need more of that replication across all environments. But then where can we vary? Because as a parent, I think this became most apparent to me when I tried to implement a system that I knew was great technically. And then I knew I needed my kids. I can't remember the first one that I did, but I was like, oh, I have these skills, right? I'm a behavior analyst. I'm gonna help my kid do X. And I did it for three days and then it fizzled because I was a mom. (laughs) Yeah,
0: like laundry and you're tired and you you can't reach those stickers all the time. No, totally, totally. (laughs) Yeah. So no. Okay. what I work on the reward, like here's the reward. And then I'm like, yeah, I haven't really gotten to Target yet. Come on. Finding a dry erase marker. That is quite a challenge for me. I'm the one that needs the plan.
1: <laughs> and so having those real conversations and then that collaboration is not blaming, right? So you're also not this whole thing. If only the parent would X. I always encourage people to pause whenever we say, if only X would do something, right? What is what are what's the underlying message there and either what can we do to support or how can we communicate better to make sure that we're collaborating and so even when I oh hold up what am I bringing to the table on that so I do think that collaboration helps everybody stay on the same page and there is so much research to support collaboration across environments but also across professionals right so if you have outside mental health providers, physicians, nutritionists, behavior analysts, all of those people being able to give input because human behavior is so complex and the human is so complex that really having that multidisciplinary approach can be really helpful.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I completely agree. And I think that it, it I love how you say it can be helpful, but it isn't all the time necessary because that's life and that's the way life goes. Let's talk about now, listen, I've done probably two or three podcasts on the process of the FBA to the BIP. So we could talk for years about this, like their entire college classes on this question. But generally speaking, how can BCBAs get involved in school for those problematic interfering behaviors, as well as for kind of those ADL kind of human behaviors, as I call them? And then what's that process look like as you walk through analyzing the behavior and then eventually developing them?
1: Sure. So I think it it does depend on where that behavior analyst is oriented in the team. So some school districts have behavior analysts that are part of their team and some have them as part of the district. Right. So you have to request them. So knowing your resources within your district or within your school is really important to know whether or not you need one, right? I think, and I'll talk about maybe how to think about that in just a second, or if it's from, if you will, the outside, right? So are you bringing them as an outside provider or do you have somebody also as an advocate who might be there with you? And I think that getting to the point where you, okay, first, it's also who important you bring. I have many colleagues who are very good technically, right? Like they understand human behavior really well, but you have to also have collaboration skills, right? So you have to understand the context of the school. You have to understand what is what IDEA mandates and that you can't, the environmental are majorly impactful in a school. So, you know, who are the peers, the teacher, you have to be able to analyze a lot of those variables that are hard to control as well, because it is a school.
0: Yeah, like perfect example that comes up all the time is the kid just doesn't like somebody. And and a lot of times it's because that person doesn't like the kid and the kid got really good ego. And so the kid's like, I don't like this. I just listened to something on self-regulation. For kids with ADHD, it was actually for my conference that I just had. And I think it was Caitlin Mabry talked about emotional regulation for kids with ADHD. And she was talking about the rejection that kids feel. And like, I know for certain there were two IAs at my kids' elementary school. I know they don't listen, but if you are, hi, we've talked a lot of times about this. And they just didn't like Jack. They thought he was, his presence in that school was a nuisance. And Jack felt that. He felt that rejection. He felt that dislike. And, but that's like something you can't control, right? Because I can't say fire these people because Jack don't like them because they don't like Jack. So there, some things
1: are not controllable. And I see that a lot. Don't you? Oh, yes. A lot. A lot. Also things, sometimes peers too, right? So sometimes it is the adults and the peers. And I have a classroom that gets really hot, right? And like the whole building is not hot, but one side of the classroom is hot. So The kid doesn't like to be hot, right? So there's all these pieces that really we can't control. And so we have to learn to take data on them and analyze them as part of the FBA. And I think that's where when you look at an FBA, say it's already been done and you're looking at it as a parent and it just feels so general. I think that sometimes that's when behavior analysts might be helpful in that scenario to break down the details a little bit more. Also wanna be super clear, we have amazing colleagues who do FBAs in the school systems as well. So the end all be all is not having a behavior analyst on your team. School psychologists, social workers, special educators definitely are all trained and able to do FBAs. And I think that the, I just want to make sure that it's not, oh, I've won some golden ticket by having a behavior analyst help me with my my FBA. But we are trained a little bit differently, so really breaking things down and analyzing some sometimes micro details to help them know what can we change? And so I think that no, if you look at it, it just seems given a demand. That's oftentimes what I see on fBAs. whoa, there's lots of kinds of demands. Are we talking about social? Are we talking about academics? and we can break down those academics? Is it writing? Is it answering? right? Like we have to then really get into what I call the nitty-gritty, which is not technical, but then we can come up with a way to support the student that is helpful, but not overbearing. So when we come up with a behavior plan, if the only FBA piece of information we have is given a demand, the intervention is supposed to match given a demand. That's all day long. But if we know it was given a written demand, right, then we can match an intervention to the writing demand. So keeping the interventions only as minimal is necessary, but still supporting. So I think that sometimes when plans look so general that and things still maybe aren't going in the right direction or you wanna look at decreasing supports or changing support, sometimes bringing a behavior analyst in to help possibly reanalyze the data. But oftentimes what I see is there might need to be just a little bit, not a lot, not a full another round of everybody likes to say 60 days of data collection, you really only need to collect data as long as until the data tell you a pattern. So sometimes that can just be a couple of weeks, depending on the frequency of the behavior. So sometimes we have to collect a little bit more data to refine the FBA.
0: Yeah. And I love how collaborative your answer was, because that's what we're all about here. And I think that kind of leads into the next question of regardless of how collaborative your spirit is from time to time, school, people are simply intimidated. So if family says, I want to bring in my private BCBA, or I would like to hire someone to come in as an expert, basically to help, to consult with the team and to look. And I know you work collaboratively with school districts all the time, but I'm certain that from time to time, you've got a district that's hesitant. What can families do to, I'm sure the answer is, is rooted in that collaboration that you just built the foundation for. So how can families build that collaborative spirit so that districts understand that what they're really looking for is an ability to support the district? Is that the right way to ask that yeah, question? No,
1: I think that's a great question. I think the answer is difficult. To, is I do think it's about approach and language often, right? So I think being transparent that you're not hiding anything, you're not trying to get X or Y, that you are really there about collaborative problem solving. And to understand, I often ask, like, why the hesitancy? Is it me? Have you heard something bad about me? Because let me address that with you. Or is it other behavior analysts? Like maybe you have heard bad things about my field, right? Is it about advocacy? Is it about somebody from the outside? Tell me where this is coming from so that I can give you more information. I may mean, not change your mind, but at least I could give you more information around who I am, what I'm coming to do, or those kinds of things. So I think I also help support families in introducing me to the school so that it's in writing and I'm on that email to start that initial communication right away and just saying, we've hired them if that's the case. I, we've hired Dr. Annie to help us understand what's going on in school. And we would like this collaboration to be from all sides. Can she talk to people? And also, I think knowing what's uh, what the district's policies are, and as an outside person trying to stay within those policies. So like some districts have no observers twice a quarter, which I know. So then it's just knowing when to push, right? When we need to, if we're doing an IE or if this is just looking at what's already happening and communication and just being transparent about that, right? I'm not going to come in and ask your teachers to completely change what they're doing. And that's not my approach. I do think being transparent about what you think the outcome is going to be or how you're going to give that input. Is helpful. So I want to come in and do an observation. If the teachers were open to it, I think this data sheet might be helpful for a week. And then hopefully at the end, I will give you a page of recommendations based on all of the factors. Does that, so like, what do they want? And oftentimes I find that the teachers and the staff really do want the support. And so finding out how, what kind of support do they want is helpful. It's not always super agree, like agreeable at the beginning. But I do think over the right. process with direct communication, it can get there.
0: Well, and you know what? I just heard your answer is twofold. The one thing I heard was a lot of humility. Please help me understand where your hesitancy comes from. So there's you start off with this really humble thing. And I think a lot of parents are making this argument or asking this request without the behaviorist there. And so they don't have the opportunity to address things. The other thing I heard that parents, I think, make a mistake doing all the time is parents go in with examples of things that the behaviorist has given them from home. So they give them like they go in with a picture of their visual schedule or a binder of visual schedules and first then charts and whatever. Sometimes the parents even describe the way they're implemented incorrectly and like first first a task and then a task instead of first a task and then a reward or whatever it is a lot of times they're describing things that the school's already doing things that are like behavior not even 101 like behavior 58 and you're like yeah i'm already doing that and then you can't describe that like spirit of the human that can come in and help us collaborate and schools i think look at people wanting to bring in their BCBAs as a security blanket. And they're like, yeah, we already got it. We've been doing first then and we do it correctly. So yeah, I totally agree that your approach is effective. And when people take that approach, and it's worked in my experience as well.
1: And I think Also, right, we started the conversation of just knowing that sometimes what works at home is not what should work or happen at school, but why does it work at home? And if there's a similar situation, brainstorming and problem solving, if a first then works, then maybe, maybe even a verbal first then might work at school. So, you know, when and how are they using it and things like that. So I think that translation from... Even the science and what's working at home into what's happening in the in the schools is just really important conversations.
0: Yeah, like one success story, big aha moment. Like I've been trying this and this, and Dr. Annie came in. She was in my house five minutes, and she said, "What about if we did this?" My God, he went to the bathroom or whatever it is, and you're like, "She's good." So I completely agree. Okay, so you're going to be speaking at Techniques for Success, which is a conference that's being put on with the National Down Syndrome Congress and three different Down Syndrome Associations in the state of Maryland. It's held in Ellicott City
1: on February 11th. Tell us what you're going to be talking about. Sure. So I am really excited to be talking about basically the intersection of executive functioning and behavior and then the practical in-home supports that parents can put in place to help with both executive function and behavior and how they interact with each other. But I think probably what parents can tell from hopefully this conversation is I don't want to show up and say, do this one intervention if your child, if this is what's happening at home, because really, truly, it has to fit into your family context. And it is coming together. The presentation is written, but I always continue to change it along the way, mm-hmm. is to really give parents those reflective questions they can ask themselves on, okay, I need a visual, but what works for me for the morning routine or what works for me for getting in the car? How can I make things more predictable? How can I make things more visual and things like that? So I think really having parents have the time, and parents and professionals. I know lots of other people attend, but thinking yeah. about parents applying some of these pieces without feeling like it has to happen all the time across all the days, because I bring that to the table as a parent I would say the only thing is they get food every day and love. And besides yes. that, things are viable. <laughs> Sometimes Griffin Barley
0: says, mom had a baby and forgot to feed it. <laughs> and of, angry. You know when like, everybody eats at a different time in your house? Then he'll be known for a while and he's, can I have some dinner? And I'm <laughs> like, oh, yeah, your dinner's in the fridge. Yes. yes. Uh-huh. And so, and so he- I'll say, you had a baby and forgot to feed <laughs> it. Like, <he's> you're <laughs> happy. And he always calls the baby it, which makes it funny. And just to add to that, because I'm we emailed back and forth a couple of times about this topic, because I'm like, this is what I'm seeing in my practice. This is what the leaders are seeing, the leaders of those Down syndrome affiliates and Maryland are seeing post-pandemic really specifically, but then a lot in particularly in pubescent kids with Down syndrome, we start to see that executive functioning start to get in the way. And lots of kids with ADHD, I think, struggle with that as well. You and I both agree that if we can really support those executive functions, then we can get to a place where we've got children that are an inclusive environment is far more accessible to them because they can, um, I don't want to say keep up because I don't think that's super respectful to them, but they can access their environment with far more ease
1: because they have different systems in place. Absolutely. And I think about prepubescence just in general, having one myself, the ability to make their own decisions, Right. And so with executive functioning deficits being planning, right, one major piece of planning. And so, right. how can we provide the opportunities to, and the time for that planning, which is when kids gain so much confidence? Is I look at sometimes choice making as a really good strategy to get buy in and cooperation. But then, when I, when you can just tweak it to actually planning of, you know, step by step, this is what they're going to do, or this is how it's going to go it really creates that support in executive functioning. And I think the control piece of being in charge and self-determination, there's just so many amazing things if tweaking it about things like what you're wearing, but how do you plan what to wear? You have to know that you need a bottom and a top and an underwear and a socks. And hey, so I've got a question about this. Somebody just emailed
0: me and asked me this and I struggle with this too. I just did a whole podcast for the University of Cincinnati's special education program on self-determination. It'll be released soon. And yeah, it's great. Oh my gosh. The two professors, Catherine Doyle and Christine Crenahan are like, Absolutely incredible people. And they have their entire post-secondary program founded in the principles of self-determination. It's it's wonderful. Well, but this woman wrote me yesterday and she has a pubescent, I would assume, based on this child's age, child with Down syndrome, very similar to mine. And I asked Dr. Katie and Dr. Christy about this too. This is off script too, Dr. E. That's know. all right. I'll take it. And get ready. Get ready yeah. for it. Like you talked about buy-in. So, at what point is how does that intersect with Mother Knows Best? Like, I know that you have to have a sport. You have to do something. If Jack was left to his own devices, he would be in this house and he would be stacking and unstacking magnetiles. He would be taking spools of thread and winding them around all of the furniture. We would go to three restaurants with regularity. He would have 75 scoops of ice cream every day can he lead a self-determination self-determined life oh yeah he knows what he wants but is it healthy no so I've shifted my shifted my focus and I don't know if this is the answer but I as a parent have shifted my focus a lot to the why like why is it important to have like to participate in lifelong sports why is it important to have friends and to leave our house and to go to different kinds of restaurants and that kind of thing this mom wrote me And said, at what point do I just give in and let him win, essentially? So, like, how do we marry self-determination? Mother knows best. Or in other words, get their buy-in to do
1: that stuff. Yeah. I think this comes up probably for all parents, right? So, yeah. Yeah. In the, as being a parent, right, exposing your child, that might, that exposure could be more supported or more encouraged, right? Because of the lack of maybe skills or resistance, right? It depends on what unique characteristics your child brings to the situation. But I feel like honestly, what you just said, I feel that way with music lessons with my kids is they're okay with them, right? Like they don't really love them. But part of my why is let's see if you like these, right? Let's see if... This might spark something in you that we didn't know. So a lot of, to me, I don't love exposure as a term and a concept, but like really, truly as a parent, part of my job is to give you a wide range of opportunities to see what sparks your unique soul's growth. And for some parents, that's easier. And some parents, that's harder based on the parent's skills, also on the kid's unique characteristics as well. So I, I also look at this in truly ages and stages of your life, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. If, if you need to quote unquote give in for the next six months because something tells you that that's where you need to be as a parent, then stop it for six months. Yeah. I think the, the to me, I would be super inspired by that parent's question in that they pause to stop and think about it i you know the pause and saying okay why is this important should i just give in? if that is what your family needs what you need your mental health your work your life whatever the balance is if that's what you need to do for this age and stage of life whatever that is then that's where you are it might be hard to come out of that because sometimes Making that change can be hard. That's good. Yeah. I think that's that is true. Like we should stop and
0: say, Wow, that's very aware of you to be asking that question because you're looking at fostering self determination while also acknowledging that you're raising somebody that, you know, if they had typical development, you they would still be under your care and control largely at the age of 15. So huh. yeah, and I'm always like, This is a teacher led household. Yeah, then, so, mama said it.
1: So that's what you gotta do. But you would so be like, if you're a 15 year old, join basketball and then quit. You would probably be like, no, we're going, right? Right. We and of, like, season or something. And like you got to do, yeah. do something. You got to
0: do something because it's not healthy. But with Jack, I feel like when you started talking about getting dressed is when I was he'd be like, I don't want to wear a shirt. I don't like shirts. That shirt's stupid. That shirt is. And then he would say dumbass. And then it would be like, well, now we got a behavior. Now we have a problematic behavior because we've said dumbass. And I also have to teach him why he has to wear a GD shirt to leave the house escalates. They're like, you can't wear your Spider-Man costume to middle school. It's weird. And so I feel like there's all this, for me at least, of of the importance of doing certain things. And if you want to wear a Spider-Man costume to school, that's fine. I don't, like, I really don't care. But you must do a sport because it's healthy for your body body. And one of the things that we teach Jack is he really likes ice cream. So you can't have ice cream every day. So we say ice cream is a treat. And if you have too much ice cream, it'll make you fat. And if you get fat, you will be unhealthy. And so Dr. Shot says that you don't breathe very well if you are too fat. And he'll say, I know. Okay. And then you'll say, are we going to have ice cream today after dinner? Yes. <laughs> and you're like, okay, good, fine. I guess you can have ice cream. That's self-determination. <laughs> I don't care if I'm fat. I don't care if my apnea is bad. <laughs> just give me the damn ice cream. Yeah. 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 Real life mom situations, real life caregiver situations, and then pushing them. And there there is a balance that shifts.
1: I think that just making sure that those decisions as much as possible, right? But that as much as possible, I think is kind of what feels great sometimes, but truly as much as possible, right? Like you you can't. <laughs> I don't know if it's cold there. It's cold here today, right? Like you yeah. can't let him leave the house without a shirt for lots of reasons. Right. But also remembering that maybe you could let him leave the house without a shirt if you weren't going to school. If you were right. just going to go drive through to pick up McDonald's or something like that so that he can experience some of those like natural occurrences of what happens when a decision he makes. Yes. occurs. Yes.
0: Oh yeah, we use a, a lot of natural consequence as here at the Barlow Household. If you're gonna ju- if you jump up then you're gonna get hurt. Good. job. Yeah. Otherwise I would be sweating all the time. <laughs> Dr. Annie, tell everybody where they can find you.
1: Yeah, for sure. So I have two different places that you can find me. My advocacy is at specialedguidance.com. And then I am also really excited. I've been for the past few years training other behavior and related service providers, because we did get a speech pathologist, to be advocate. So if that's something that people are interested in, that background as a related service provider is important, because we're approaching things from a slightly different way, that is at iepadvocacytraining.com.
0: Awesome. I didn't know that. That is great. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast. It's been such a pleasure. Uh, Thanks for having me. I will see you next week. Same time, same place.